So last night I gave a pretty quick overview of the three universal characteristics of all experience. And you know by now that whenever I mention a numbered list, that means that it's pop quiz time. <laughs> and because there's only three, it should be pretty easy. Three universal characteristics of all experience. Impermanent. Impermanence. Not so. That's the third one. What's the second one? Dukkha. Imperfect. Yes, thank you. Dukkha or imperfect. So, classically, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self, sometimes also translated as impermanent, imperson- imperfect and impersonal. So, impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. And last night I focused mostly just on the first of these three, which is impermanence. And we've already been exploring dukkha in a whole range of different ways. So tonight I'd like to take some time with the third one, anatta or not-self, thanks to a question from Leiden. So as we were saying then, this of the three is probably the most difficult to understand intellectually. And that's not surprising because the deepest understanding of it comes from embodied insight, not from thinking cognitively about it. Nevertheless, it can be helpful to have some context to orient to, because there are very practical benefits from understanding some of the mechanisms of how this sense of self arises, how it gets solidified, namely through clinging, and then how that clinging can release. So first, though, just to situate anatta or not-self in the context of these three universal insights, because there is a relationship between all of them. The first one, anicca or impermanence, as we were looking at last night, points to the fact that all experience is constantly changing. On one level, this is quite obvious. We've been exploring it every time we sit down to meditate. And just as many of you reported this afternoon in the relational practice, exploring mental qualities or mind states and seeing just how quickly they change. And this is good news, because if our mental qualities didn't have the capacity to change, there'd be no possibility of awakening, of freedom. So anicca, impermanence for most people, is the easiest to see, at least on the first level. The second one, the universal characteristic of dukkha, is a little harder to grasp, partly because the word dukkha is very commonly translated as suffering. So when we hear this statement that all experience is dukkha, not only does that not sound appealing, it's just not true in our own experience. Because all of us have experienced Moments of ease, of happiness, of delight, even joy. And as some of you have been reporting, some right here on this retreat, quite intense times of pleasantness. So to say all experience is suffering doesn't make sense. 
And in fact, in this context, the word dukkha is better accurately translated as unsatisfactory, in the sense of unreliable, incapable of providing lasting fulfillment because of the truth of impermanence. So there is that relationship between impermanence and dukkha. And although we might resist this fact, if we really pay attention to our experience, we might recognize this sense of unreliability, even lurking in the most pleasant of experiences. There's always that shadow of knowing it's going to end, it is going to change. And then we'll have to find the next hit of pleasant experience to keep us going. So at first there might be some grudging acceptance of the truth of dukkha and satisfactoriness. But as we start to accept it more fully, we recognize that it does lead to greater ease and to a more sustainable happiness because we're not caught up in chasing after this, that, the other thing that we think is finally going to do it for us once and for all. And we don't get so disappointed when things don't deliver the happiness that they seem to promise. So instead of putting all our attention out there to try and get happiness, we develop our inner capacity for ease and contentment, and then we can be independent of whatever is happening out there and still experience some degree of happiness. So as the practice progresses, we see the truth of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness more and more clearly. And how that clear seeing strengthens our capacity to be happy. But then the third universal characteristic of anatta, usually translated as not-self, is for most people much harder to grasp. And just to acknowledge, in English, the phrase not-self sounds quite unpleasant and to some people just incomprehensible, meaningless. And so there can be a tendency with some people to try to tie themselves up in knots to make sense of it intellectually. But again, right there is the problem. And the second problem comes from confusion about the term self within not-self. And this is because the way the Buddha used the word self and the way we usually think of self in the context of perhaps Western psychology, it's different. In Western psychology, it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. So when we hear this term not-self, it might sound like the Buddha is asking us to negate that and that the goal of practice is to somehow become a nobody a complete non-entity, a colorless, characterless being with no individuality or expressiveness whatsoever. But even if that were possible, it's a serious misunderstanding of what's being pointed to here. This is not at all what the Buddha was asking us to do. In fact, although it might sound paradoxical, Deeply understanding the characteristic of not-self actually improves a healthy sense of self. So in order to get a better grasp of what not-self refers to, we need to understand 
what the Buddha was referring to when he used the word self. So according to Buddhist scholars of the India at that time, the term Atta or Atman was commonly used in the Indian spiritual traditions and philosophical traditions of the Buddha's time to refer to an eternal soul or an unchanging essence. And the Buddha refuted this understanding because he had seen very deeply and directly in his own experience that because everything is constantly changing, everything is a process that's in continual flux. There is no fixed, permanent entity, identity or soul at the centre who is experiencing all of this. Now perhaps on an intellectual level maybe there's some understanding of the truth of that. And perhaps even, again, based on the relational practice that we did this afternoon when we were looking at mind states, as several of you reported, at first you might have thought, well, my mind is just like this. What am I going to say for three minutes? I'm just dull. Or I'm just disconnected. Or, yeah, I'm alert. I'm present. But when you had three minutes to really pay attention to the actual qualities, as many of you reported, it was surprising just how many of them there were in those three short minutes and how quickly they were changing. So to tell ourselves simply, I am dull or I am alert, actually takes quite a lot of editing or censoring out many of those other changing experiences. And yet still, on a felt-sense level, somehow beneath all that, there often is some feeling that, but yeah, this is me. This is who I am. And this is a natural part of the human experience. We're not trying to deny that. It's on one level common sense. I'm me. I'm not you. Each of us does have different life stories conditioning, personalities, and so on. So the subtlety of this teaching on not-self is it's inviting us to look at where we cling to that sense of me and try to make it more solid than it actually is. Because it's the clinging that creates the problem. To the extent that we take this sense of me to be real, solid, true, fixed, permanent, to that extent, we suffer. So as an analogy for this, I sometimes use the metaphor of going to the cinema to watch a movie. Back in the days before digital, when they still had those big old film projectors with the reels of film. Although actually we don't need to go to a movie theatre because a lot of the time we're just playing movies in our own heads. And coincidentally, those movies always seem to make we ourselves the star of the show. So the movie is called All About Me, and we write the script, and we're the lead actor, and we're the producer, and the publicist, and the creative director, and we even put together the soundtrack. And we get so fascinated and so enchanted by all the dramas that were playing out on the movie screen 
that we don't even recognize that we ourselves are fabricating the entire experience. So in some ways all of these teachings are an invitation from the Buddha to turn our attention away from the movie screen and to look back at the projector and to understand the mechanism that's creating the whole illusion. Now, perhaps for some of you that still might not sound very appealing. There is often quite a deep reflex that clings to this sense of be, wanting to be someone. And even though on some level we might recognize this dukkha associated with it. So in fact, even in ordinary mainstream society, in the way that language has developed, we can see this unpleasantness that is associated with the sense of self, clinging to it. So on a, a linguistic level, at least in English, I was surprised to discover just how many words there are that are associated with the prefix self, and that of those words, how many of them are pretty negative or unpleasant. So a few years ago I was doing some research and I was looking for a synonym for the word self-conscious. So I looked it up in one of those massive dictionaries and was surprised to see how many pages there were of words beginning with self. And that most of those words were pretty unpleasant. So I'll give you just a few examples now. And as you hear them, just notice any reactions in your self Self-absorbed, self-aggrandizing, self-approving, self-centered, self-complacent, self-congratulatory, self-conscious, self-delusion, self-important, self-indulgent, self-pitying, self-referencing, self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-serving. Just a few examples, but how do you feel when you hear these words? <laughs> I don't know about for you, but for me, when I hear them, even when I read them, there's this slight, slight tensing in my body and a a contraction around the heart area and just a feeling of stiffening, shrinking, bracing just from hearing the words, let alone from living the actual reality of them. And I think all of us might have had similar experiences during retreats or in daily life. At those times when the sense of self did get very strongly activated. when it, And this activation of the self and the clinging to it can come up in response to unpleasant or to pleasant situations. So just for example, on retreat, in relation to a pleasant experience, we're sitting meditating and perhaps there's a surge of feeling, yes, finally, now I'm getting it right. My meditation is going so well now and I'm finally on track. Nibbana, here I come. <laughs> and if we have strong mindfulness, we can notice the effects of that strong sense of self. 
They might feel a sense of tightening, narrowing, limitation, stiffening and so on. Energetically quite different from the experience we can have when the sense of self, there's less clinging to it. We're just present with the ever-changing flow of experience. And usually this is accompanied by feelings of ease, lightness, spaciousness, being open to new possibilities, more like the flow state that I referred to last night. And often we find the Brahma-Vihara qualities, the heart qualities of kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, start to arise quite spontaneously. So as this practice deepens, there tends to be a shift from self-centered to other-centered and then eventually to non-centered because it's not that we're just focusing on the other at the expense of ourselves this is just another form of delusion instead the distinctions between self and other become less relevant and ultimately it doesn't make sense to refer to a sense a self at the center of it at all There's one other reason that I think many people find the idea of anatta so difficult. And again, it's due to the translation of it as not-self. Because in English, this term immediately sets up a duality of apparent opposites, self versus not-self. And this again can reinforce the misunderstanding that the goal of practice is for the self to somehow get rid of itself so that it can stop all that selfing and instead make itself into a not-self. So you hear the impossibility of that. It's like a dog chasing its tail. And ultimately it's futile. It only ties us up in intellectual knots. So rather than thinking of not-self in terms of this binary, I find it more useful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum. So at one end, we can think of the strongly activated clinging to a sense of self at one end of the spectrum, and at the other, the quieter, less activated, less clung to sense of self at the other. And then between those two poles, we can just at any point in time get a sense of where are we along that spectrum and to recognize that it's constantly shifting. So again, even right now, you might tune in and see if you can get a a sense of that. How strong is your sense of self, your clinging to identity in this moment? Perhaps for some of you, you're hearing this and it's not making much sense and you're starting to feel like you're not getting it and there's some frustration or judgment and it's bringing in ideas of memories from high school and how you were never a very good student and this is stupid and why am I here anyway? So you might be more at this end. (laughs) For others, it might be, "Mm, yeah, bits of it are making sense, yeah. There's a sense of just trusting that what's useful will stick and what isn't will just flow through and there's just a sense of contentment and openness and presence. So for you, you might be a little more towards this end of the spectrum.
Does that make sense? Do you have a sense of that? Okay, so now I'll just go around the room and ask each of you to identify <laughs> where you are. <laughs> joking. <laughs> I think you got that I was joking. But you might have felt a sense of self immediately get activated <laughs> when I suggested that as a possibility. Yes. So we're, play- we're playing with this. We can have fun with it. So you can just practice this knowing when is it strong, when is it not, without adding any reactivity to it. And when we really start to recognize those times when there is more identification, more clinging, the dukkha of it starts to be more obvious. And then there's a natural incentive to allow it to release. And conversely, when the sense of self is less clung to, less activated, when we tune into those more subtle qualities of ease and peace and spaciousness, we naturally want to stay there. But don't take my word for it. Just for the, as you go about your day, just notice that constant shifting and sliding between clinging and release. So again, just in case that's sounding a little bit abstract, I'll give you a hypothetical example of how this might play out on retreat. It's kind of hypothetical and partly based on an actual experience. So imagine that you're on retreat. I wasn't saying who it happened to, but you're on retreat somewhere pleasant, like here, you've been there for a while, you're sitting quietly in the hall, the mind settles down, the meditation develops some momentum, perhaps there are some moments of real ease, even peace, and in those moments the sense of self is hardly there at all, so you have one of those classically really good sittings, and then afterwards that voice says, wow, that was great. I've really got it now. I wonder if anybody noticed how long I was sitting in the hall for and how totally still I was for that entire time. I'm getting really good at not-self now. I wonder why they don't give out awards on this. Because if they did, I would definitely get the award for best (laughs) not-self. So you notice that voice, you let it go, you start walking slowly to the dining room, and during the walk again there's just that sense of staying present with the body, and just the awareness of sights and sounds, with a few wispy thoughts pass through the mind. And there's a reducing of what used to be that familiar soundtrack of here I am, Yogi on retreat, doing my practice, me being super mindful as I walk, and me noticing lifting, and me noticing moving, and me noticing placing, <laughs> me getting to the dining room super slowly. <laughs> All of that has disappeared. And we're just present, standing in the lunch line, very slowly, very mindfully, getting our food, 
And then you pick up the jug of salad dressing and it's slippery and it crashes on the floor and it shatters. And there's a huge pool of oil all over the floor. And people come to help you, but you're totally oblivious to all of that because your mind is just filled with what an idiot, how could I have been so clumsy? Now I'm outed as the least mindful person on the entire retreat. Everyone has seen through what a hopeless meditator I am. I may as well just give up now and go So did you notice in all of that, the ebb and flow, the sliding from one end to the other and back again? So as we get used to knowing where we are along that scale, it also becomes easier to help ourselves move along it without taking ownership, without fixing ourselves at any point along there. And in support of that, there's a statement from the teachings that uh, highlights this. It's sometimes presented as summarizing the entire the entirety of the Buddha's teachings. And that statement is, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And when I first heard that statement early on in my own practice, it brought up all kinds of resistance. And I spent quite a bit of time mentally arguing with it. Nothing? That's a bit extreme. (laughs) What about X? Surely X is okay. X being whatever it was that I was currently clinging to, whether that was a relationship or my good health or being on retreat or understanding the teachings. And I I would go back to the statement and I'd have to acknowledge it does say nothing. Nothing is to be clung to. Didn't really leave a lot of room for argument. (laughs) Finally, I realized it was the clinging that was being pointed to as the problem, not the thing itself. Nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. But for most of us, this practice starts with where we do cling, where we do commonly create an identity out of our experience. And to help with that, the Buddha gave us yet another numbered list, one that I referred to briefly the other night, the five aggregates of clinging. So, yep, it's pop quiz time again, and let's see if you can do better this time than you did the other night. In numbered order. Anyone remember the five clinging aggregates? Material form. Very good. Material form, which includes the body. Vedana, very good. Feeling tone. Perception. Very good. Perception. Volitional formations. Thank you. And consciousness. Excellent. Wow, that's good progress in just a couple of days. So I'm not going to have time to go into all of these in detail, but just to give a, a very brief overview of what they are for context for practice, not only during the rest of this retreat, but the rest of our lives. So the first one, material form, physical phenomena of all sorts, including the body. And the body is one area where we tend to particularly cling to and identify with. And on one level, this is completely normal, natural, natural. 
we do have a primal survival instinct that we want to protect our physical bodies. There's nothing wrong with that. What we're looking at is when we're reminded of the body's impermanence and its vulnerability, it can be quite disturbing. So as I touched into briefly last night in terms of contemplation of death, we can see this in our own personal resistance to aging, to illness, to dying. And also in wider society, in ageism, the way we treat older people. And of course, how death is often related to as a taboo. (coughs) Something that we try to avoid thinking about as much as possible. So when I was giving the talk last night, I was remembering an experience I had when I was doing volunteer work in a hospice in Massachusetts. And I went to visit an old lady who was in the last couple of weeks before she died. And I'd been to see her a few times. And she stood out in my mind because she was one of the few patients who actually understood, acknowledged her situation. And yet she also had a sense of humor about it. So I quite enjoyed visiting with her. And on one visit towards the end, I came into her room and there was a giant bunch of helium balloons, those metallic shiny balloons floating up on the ceiling. And each of the balloons had written on it in giant pink letters, Get well soon. (laughs) And the lady saw me looking at these balloons and she just rolled her eyes and smiled and said, Yeah, right. (laughs) Because she knew and she accepted what her best friend couldn't. That within a week or two she would be dead. Now, just to acknowledge, the woman's friend, you know, she probably had good intentions, she was probably doing her best to be kind. But it's just an illustration of how generally, in mainstream society, we don't know how to relate to the reality of dying and death. And we generally do cling to a delusion that this body is not impermanent. Partly because it's just too fundamentally unpleasant. So that brings us to the second of the five clinging aggregates, which is feeling tone or Vedana. And as you know, this refers to how every sense contact at any of the sense doors is automatically registered by a nervous system as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And we can't do anything about that. But very quickly, those pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones, as you all have been experiencing, move into wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking. And then often we take those personally too. So we identify with our preferences. We tell ourselves all kinds of statements about what I like and I don't like. I love contemporary art. I don't love right-wing politicians, and so on. We make an identity out of what we like and what we don't like. And this is reinforced by the third clinging aggregate, which is perception or cognition. This perception is a technical term, and it refers to the capacity of the mind to recognize, to label, to identify objects or experience 
Though, for example, shawl or light or human or hand or hearing. And this is just a natural, normal function of the mind. We want it because without it we would be in trouble. Every time we walked into the room we had to work out where am I supposed to sit and what do I sit on and what's that thing there and what you know, there'll be a lot of mental energy wasted. So perception by itself is not an issue, but when we cling to it, then it's more of a problem. We tend to think how we perceive the world is the one true and right way. And I share an example a few years ago of uh, just in terms of visual perception. Someone I knew was putting together a website for a meditation center and they asked me if I would take a look at it and see what I thought. And I didn't know this person particularly well, but I was happy to help them. And they opened up this web page and I just saw this, to my eye, a cacophony of violent colors. And the background of the page was a sort of vibrant turquoise color. And the writing on it was yellow. And the photos had a sort of a lime green border around them. <laughs> it was almost hurting my eyes to look at this. <laughs> I didn't quite know what to say. So I said, oh, that's an interesting color combination. <laughs> I'm curious, what made you choose those particular colors? And the person said, oh, well, I just wanted them to harmonize with the colors of monks' robes. And I thought, <laughs> I don't know which monks he's been spending. <laughs> anyway, he said, do they not look like monks' robes' colors? <laughs> he said, oh, that's interesting, because I'm colorblind, and my wife always tells me <laughs> But it was just that moment of realizing that I was sitting right next to him looking at exactly the same screen and we were seeing things that were completely different. And how much of the time is that going on and we don't really realize it. And of course that's a relatively benign example. But the problem is that we take those and we run with them and we make them solid and static, and we cling to those perceptions. And we believe them to be fixed and real and true and who I am. And we tell themselves, well, this is who I am, and that's how my partner is, and that's how my family members are. They always say that, and they never do this. And those stories start to complexify into the fourth category, which is a category of sankara, or volitional formations. There's a lot in this clinging aggregate, but just to say it refers to all the mental processes of the mind, take the raw sense data, and use it to construct all kinds of stories and beliefs and constructs and views about our experience. And in the center of it, a fixed sense of self. <clears throat> so we can think of sankara as that tendency, as an aspect of that tendency to make narratives about who we are and then to inhabit those narratives as if they were ultimate reality. 
And usually these stories are not examined, and they're just assumed to be true. We don't recognize their fabricated or constructed nature. So perhaps some of you have had the experience of telling yourself some kind of story that you believed about your past for many years, and then perhaps at some point finding out that a key piece of it wasn't actually factually true. Or finding out that someone else who was involved in that narrative had a completely different perspective, a completely different set of sankharas in relationship to it. So this is quite common in families. If any of you have siblings and you start to share stories of your childhood, do you ever wonder if they were brought up in actually the same family at all? Because the stories can be so different. So our stories are not set in stone. There is an element of choice, of volition about them. And that's why these are called volitional formations. And sometimes consciously trying to see ourselves and our stories from a different perspective, a different viewpoint, can reveal where we might be clinging to a sankara holding on to a story and telling ourselves that story over and over again. I am my terrible childhood, or I am my abusive relationship, or I am my addictive personality, and so on. That doesn't mean that there might not be some truth in there. So we want to bring kindness and compassion to this process. We're not just dismissing it, oh, that's all just sankara. That would be cruel. So this is where we need wisdom and compassion to come together so that we can see through it but meet the pain of it with kindness. And then the last of the five aggregates subject to clinging is consciousness itself. And in this context, Consciousness is the capacity to know what's happening at the sixth sense door. So just the consciousness of sights and sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations and mental activity. So consciousness as a clinging aggregate is the tendency to identify with this function of the mind itself. And it's sometimes referred to in meditation as the last holdout of clinging. Because we might have got used to realizing, well, I'm, I'm not my body, it's impermanent. Yes, of course, feeling tones are always changing, I don't have to hold on to my preferences. Perceptions, yep, I can understand that's just a function of the mind. Maybe I'm even able to see through and let go some of my more solid stories but right back in there somewhere is still the sense that I am my mind I am my consciousness and so just to play with that that's partly why the other day in the relational practice I invited you to experiment with not using personal pronouns when you were reporting your experience and we can change, we can use this passive voice construction when we're meditating. So for example, rather than saying, I am knowing my knee pain, or I am aware of a feeling of despair, internally we can just name to ourselves, 
heat being known, aching being known, pulsing being known, wave of frustration being known. Pulse of despair is like this. Moment of sadness is like this. Feeling of relief being known, and so on. So we're not even just linguistically reinforcing that sense of me who's experiencing all of this. So we're starting to settle a little more deeply into this understanding of anatta, the truth of not-self. And as I said the other night, this that Tibetan term about getting used to it definitely applies here. So we can train in getting used to the understanding that there is no solid, fixed person in here that we can cling to as being I, me, or mine. And then we can just allow the process to unfold, to trust that we actually don't have to micromanage the whole thing and figure everything out for ourselves. We just keep putting in place the conditions of sati, of samadhi, of kindness, of compassion, and let the natural unfolding of the process happen. So ultimately we even let go of clinging to any attachment to results, of clinging to anything whatsoever. And perhaps just to get a a little flavor of that, I'd like to close with a, a poem from one of the elder nuns. This is from a pretty ancient sutta collection known as the Theragata, which was composed, um, it's a collection of sometimes called enlightenment poems by nuns from the time of the Buddha. So, many centuries ago. But to me at least, this one has a timeless quality. It's by Sister Uttama. Four times, five times, I went out from the monastery, heart without peace, heart out of control. I approached the nun. She seemed like someone I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, about what makes a person, about the senses and their objects, and about the basic elements that make up everything. I listened to what she taught did exactly as she said. For seven days I sat in one position, legs crossed, given over to joy and happiness. On the eighth day I stretched out my feet after splitting open the mass of mental darkness. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.